Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. The volume. Just a reminder that you can catch me recording this podcast live on AMP. AMP is the new live radio app that lets you call in and chat with me in person while I'm recording. Get the app on Apple's App Store, and make sure you follow me at Chris Mannix to get notified when I go live. This is Boxing with Chris Mannix. Oh, somebody punch him in the face. Anthony Joshua is a composed and ferocious finisher. Watch this. Andy Ruiz is the heavyweight champion. Hosted by SI's Chris Mannix. That was my moment. Now with interviews, analysis, and everything going on in the world of boxing. When you have talent, you are given another chance. Here's Chris Mannix. This is Boxing with Chris Mannix, part of the Volume Sports Podcast Network. We've got a fantastic show for you today. I know I say that all the time, but this show really is going to be excellent. Keith Idex, senior writer with BoxingScene.com, good friend of the pod. He joins me to run through all the news of the week, from the controversy coming out of the Alexander Usyk-Daniel Dubois fight to Terrence Crawford's pursuit of a Canelo fight. Can't wait to get into that to a potential big fight in the works in the lightweight division. I'll talk to Keith about that as well. Later, Michaela Mayer, former 130-pound champion. She is moving up to the welterweight division for her next fight. She joins me to talk about that move, and we get into her thoughts on her arch rival, Alicia Baumgartner, testing positive for banned substances. But first, Keith Eidek, senior writer, boxing scene, one of the most plugged-in guys in the business, which is why I love having him on so often. Keith, I want to start by giving a shout-out to Tom Brown, a dedicated listener who I had a chance to catch up with on Tuesday at the undercard presser for Canelo Alvarez, Jermel Charlo. Tom, of course, the promoter of that event. He told me he especially enjoys the episodes that we do together. So shout-out Tom Brown, TGB Promotions. Friends of the pod are everywhere in boxing, Keith. I I think Tom might be listening just for a reason to yell at both of us, maybe, but... uh... That's neither here nor there. Tom is a good man, though. All, all kidding aside, you know. He, he did say he uh, occasionally picks up the phone and calls you after hearing something you may have said yeah. on this podcast. No, so, but look, uh, look. I mean, it's all healthy, you know. It's all healthy exchanges and all that kind of stuff. And and, and all kidding aside, Chris, and I and I like Tom and respect Tom. You know, he's been in this business forever. Um, but I never really like if if someone has disagrees with something you say and they call you to respectfully 
discuss it. I have no, I never have a problem with that, you know. And Tom's an old school guy no. too, man. He's not gonna, he's not on Twitter and all this stupid stuff that that you and I both hate, you know. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I mean, I always appreciate being able to, and and it goes both ways, you know. If you have a complaint or, or something to discuss, I mean, his his phone line's open as well, so. Yeah, no, whenever uh, something comes up, whether it's on the podcast or in print, I, I always actually enjoy a healthy debate if somebody disagrees mm-hmm. with uh, with a take or a point that uh, that I'm making. So, yeah, uh, I do love that Tom Brown's a listener, though. Thanks for listening, uh, Tom. All right, uh, so I want to start this show in the heavyweight division. So we had on Saturday Alexander Usyk successfully defending his three heavyweight titles, stopping Daniel Dubois in the ninth round of that fight. There was controversy, however, in the fifth, when Dubois dropped Usyk with a beltline shot that referee Louis Pabon deemed to be low. That decision, as you might expect, was met by considerable outrage from Dubois and his team after the fight. Uh, here's Dubois and his promoter, Frank Warren. No, I didn't think that was a low blow. I thought that landed, and I've been cheated out of victory tonight. But, you know, what else can I say? What else can I say? Frank. Yeah, victory. It hit him on the waistband. You put, I wish they could put it up on there now and let the whole place look at it. Could we play that back by chance? Pardon? I'm asking if we can play that back. We could play that back and show it to everybody. That's all he works on in camp, worked into the body. You see that as a weakness, and he got caught, and that referee got it badly wrong, badly wrong. Didn't take any points off him. If it's a low blow, why didn't he take points off him? It's, you know, and I, and I like Usyk. I like him, but... That was a hometown decision, complete hometown decision. He won that fight because he was not fit to go on. And they gave him, I don't know how long it was, a couple of minutes to recover from a legitimate shot. And here's Dubois' trainer, Don Charles. Yusuf is an exceptional fighter. We know that. Yeah? But he's got to cut out the cheating. Yeah? However you want to dress it up, that's cheating. The fight should have been concluded in that round. He legitimately got hit on the button and he went down. He actually thought of not continuing, continuing, right? That's called faking it. And the referee fell for it. And I trust Frank Warren in the sense that he's going to lodge a complaint. Okay. I'm speechless. I usually got a lot to say. I'm speechless. Where? The fight was com- the fight ended in round four, and we got conned out of it. Period. Usyk, as you might expect, Keith had a pretty succinct rebuttal to Charles's comments. Don Charles, he has brain fart. Thank you. All right. So a few thoughts on you know this you know quote unquote controversy um, as it relates to Usyk being branded a cheater by Don Charles. That's just ridiculous. Uh, Usyk wasn't faking it. Usyk wasn't milking it. In fact, if you go back and watch the tape, you see pretty clearly after he gets up, Alexander Usyk uh, telling the referee that he didn't need any more time. Uh, it was Louis Pabon, somewhat inexplicably, you know, towards the end of that incident, telling Usyk to take even more time. So Usyk is not a cheater. As it relates to the low blow itself. Uh, I personally thought it was low. It was borderline, but I thought it was low. And one of the reasons I have no issue with the referee ruling it a low blow is that just two rounds earlier, we saw Dubois warned for a low blow. So 
in that moment, a bang-bang type of moment, for the referee to, you know, lean in that direction that it was a low blow is understandable. If you had just warned a fighter that he had hit below the belt two rounds earlier, your mind probably is going to give someone like Alexander Usyk in that situation uh, the benefit of the doubt. And to hear Daniel Dubois say things like, he landed it smack in the stomach. No, he didn't. No, you know, it, it, it's hard to discern whether or not it was a low blow. Here we are talking about it days later, and you search social media, and you see fighters, you know, having completely different opinions on this incident. But it was not this clean blow that should have obviously been ruled a knockdown. Daniel Dubois should not be, you know, the unified heavyweight champion. So let's start here with with your take on it. Um, did you see a low blow in that instance? And do you believe that Daniel Dubois somehow got robbed? I wouldn't say that Daniel Dubois got robbed. I would say that's a borderline shot, in my opinion, because his trunks are a little high. One thing that I didn't like, and, and I wasn't paying attention to this in the beginning of the fight, but I went back and watched. Luis Pabon, when he's giving his instructions or whatever you would call what he said before the fight started, he did not... Now, he may have done this in the dressing room. He may have you know, instructed them what was a legal punch to the body and what wasn't in the dressing room. But they're not face-to-face in the dressing room. So when he tells Daniel Dubois that, he's not looking at Alexander Usyk's trunks and where they are and vice versa. So he probably did tell them that in the dressing room, but he did not do it in the ring before the fight started, which is common practice for experienced referees. He didn't do that. Again, Usyk's trunks and Dubois' trunks are right about at the same spot. So what would be a legal blow for one would presumably be a legal blow for the other one. Uh, I didn't really look. There are camera angles in which it looks lower than it does when you're looking at it from another camera angle. Luis Pabon had a clear look at it and immediately called it a low blow. So in his mind, it was certainly low enough to warrant a break in the action not a four minute break in the action. And he, I mean, you only get five, you know, that's the maximum amount allowable. And it seemed like he was going to give him half an hour. Uh, so I, I don't like the way Luis Pabon handled it. I do think that, you know, look, the one thing about Usyk is he has shown susceptibility to the body in his career, particularly when he was in the amateurs. I mean, he does not really react to body punches well. And if, again, you go back and watch the the footage and, wasn't really paying attention to it all that much in real time. Timothy Bradley says right before the bell starts, Dubois needs to go to Usyk's body. He literally said it right before the opening bell started and he tried and then that happens. So I'm not saying that I certainly don't think Usyk is a cheater. As Don Charles said, I agree with you on that, but look, he may have gotten hit with what was a clean body shot and, and, you know, and sold it a little bit as a low blow because he didn't think he... There were other things about it, Chris, that I don't like, like on both sides of it. Usyk literally said to... I, I don't remember the outlet, so I'm not... I would like to give whoever he said it to credit, but I don't remember which outlet it was. But he did say, had Luis Pabon started counting when he went down from that and called that a legal body blow, he would have got up. Well, which is it? You couldn't get up or you could have. You can't have it both ways. I mean, that's a that's a sketchy thing for him to have said in the aftermath of the fight, in my opinion. And then, did did he say, Keith? Let me ask you. Did he? I didn't hear him say he couldn't get up. Did, did he say in the well, aftermath why, that he why couldn't are you get up? Rolling around on the floor. Well, I I think to play devil's advocate on this side, I think that 
Because Louis Pabon immediately ruled that it was a low blow. He immediately said that. He, he went over to Usyk and said, stay down. So when Pabon said, stay down, I think Usyk said, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to stay down. That hurt. What, whether it was legal or not, that hurt. I'm going to stay down. And it, afterwards, this is, I actually agree with Usyk. I believe this, this statement from Usyk. Uh, if he had heard a count, if Pabon had turned to him and started to count, I think he would have found his way to his feet. I think he would have found a way to survive the rest of that round. Now, we, we may never know, but as far as why he stayed down, I think he stayed down because Pabon immediately went to him and said, I think he told him to stay down in that moment. I don't really re- remember. If, I'm not saying he didn't, Chris. I'm just saying that he he was making it seem as if he couldn't get up. I don't think he was. he went to get up and then said, oh, well, he said, stay down. I'm going to stay down. Be, be that whatever the case, it's an odd thing to say after the way he reacted to that, as if he could not have gotten up in my, that's the way I saw it. Um, and then to say, Oh, but I would have gotten up if he started counting, but you were on the, you were while Pabon kept encouraging him to take more time. He did take well over three minutes to, to recover from that. So if it was something that you could have got up from right away, did you need three plus minutes? I mean, I guess you could pin that on Luis Pabon. On the flip side, Daniel Dubois said that once that happened in the fifth round, and I'm paraphrasing here, he kind of he couldn't keep focused on the fight because he felt like everything was against him. And it, look, man, you got to be mentally stronger than that. And and while it may have taken away his opportunity to become the unified heavyweight champion, um, you you still have seven more rounds to continue to hit him with a, a legal body blow. Or something else. I mean, you've got a good right hand. You've got a good jab. Put it together, man. Look, the bottom line is Daniel Dubois didn't belong in that fight to begin with. He didn't deserve a title shot. You got one anyway when Joe Joyce was forced to wait and then took a fight that was a little too tough and wound up blowing his own title shot. So he got a title shot because he beat Trevor Bryan for an absurd WBA title that should not exist. So he didn't even belong in the ring. If you somehow get to that point anyway you got to make the most of that opportunity for 12 rounds and to say that i kind of shut it down after that because i felt like there was too much working against me i mean it's really hard to sympathize with someone who says something like that and frankly i don't know if he has the the fortitude to become a champion because look he went he he went down on was what wasn't all that hard of a punch and from what i could tell at, toward the end of the eighth round use the maximum allowable time and he winds up getting up it looked like he was trying to do the same thing in the ninth round which again doesn't exactly cloak Luis Pabon in, in in glory either because he could he was up at nine and he stopped the fight now he very well might have gotten knocked out because there was well over a minute left when he got up but he did beat the count which is the exact same thing he did at the end of the eighth round so I'm not really sure why he stopped it at the same time didn't really look like Daniel Dubois wanted to be there anymore no, and as far as the stoppage, I always feel like whenever a guy gets up at nine, doesn't really want to fight. You know, he, he, you should know in your mind that when you hear eight, that's when you get up. That's when you actually want it. That's when you're taking the full amount of allotted time. Nine to me is your way of getting up, but leaving the, that kind of window open for you to be able to say later that you wanted to continue, but the referee waved it off. I saw nothing in the eyes of Danny Dubois that made me believe he wanted to continue. He went down on a jab, right. Keith, on that punch. He, he looked like he was he was finished in that moment. And Dubois said some weird things after the fight. There was the whole, like, I hit him square in the stomach. No, you didn't. Like, at best, it was a legal punch that was 
was borderline. Um, what else was he saying? Uh, he, he just he he just was was not didn't feel like he was connected to reality towards the the end of that. And look, yeah, you know, it's kind of funny listening to Frank Warren kind of talk out of both sides of his mouth right now because on one hand, Frank Warren's trying to make a fight between Usyk and Tyson Fury. On the other hand, he's you know talking about filing. Uh, grievances or whatever it is uh, to to get that overturned into a no contest and get a rematch for Danny Dubois. But nothing I saw, Keith, makes me believe anyone would order a rematch. I mean, oh. this this footage has been dissected more than the Zapruder film, and nobody can come to a consensus about whether or not it was a low blow. I mean, Tony Bellew, Carl Frampton, they say it was definitely a low blow. My pal Sergio Mora, among others, say absolutely not. It was not a low blow. So the fact that you can't get anything definitive here tells me that nobody's going to order a rematch based on that evidence. Whichever side you're on, Chris, I think one thing we can all agree on, this was not some kind of egregious Andrew Galata type low blow. That's not what happened on Saturday. I mean, if you want to say it was like slightly low and you know a little below the belt or whatever, okay. But it's not one of those, you know, when Galata was literally trying to punch his Riddick bow and you, know? you, you look, look, use a more recent example, Keith. F.A. Ajagba in his fight just this well, past he, week. Right, he was getting right. drilled with the yeah, I, I, that, I mean, Those were egregious. Could you imagine if you were guiding Don Kasabutsky's <laughs> career and he gets to a point in a fight that he could win? He could beat F.A. Ajagba. Yep. F.A. Ajagba has shown a lot of vulnerability and a lack of killer instinct and, and a multitude of other weaknesses. He could have won that fight. And then he, I know that we're going to talk about this anyway, but then he... Mm-hmm. would eventually fight Jared Anderson. And he basically threw away his, his career. He was 19-0 and 0 with 18 knockouts and and basically found a way out of a – not basically, he found a way out of a fight that he felt like he was not being treated fairly in as opposed to trying to knock F.A. Jogba out or, or however else he could win the fight by legal means. Yeah, I just – I think that – to spin it back to, to Usyk and Dubois, I, I just think that you're not going to get – anyone to to rule that this fight should there's not enough evidence to overturn anything like this is this fight's going to stand the outcome's going to stand nobody's going to to overrule anything the other thing i was going to say about dubois was something you brought up which was how he said he lost focus after the 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 non-knockout in that fifth round i mean that that to me is just another excuse like you had four more rounds like at the you know for the rest of that uh fifth round you could have pursued Usyk even further. You had more rounds to do. Instead, in the eighth round, you went down. The ninth round, you went down. I think I thought that was a cop out for uh, for Dubois to to say that he lost focus there. I just, I, you know, I think he's a good fighter. I think he's shown, you know, for you know, in, in his high profile fights, he's not a great fighter. And uh, maybe that changes. He's young enough. He's going to get another chance. Maybe we see him in a bigger fight down the road. But uh, for right now, I, I think that's the the outcome of that fight is going to stay and be what it is. Um. I touched briefly on Fury versus Usyk. Yeah, Philip Perkovich lur- lurking out there as a mandatory challenger. Uh, his team all say they're going to enforce his rights if the IBF orders uh, that mandatory fight. Meanwhile, Tyson Fury is scheduled to fight October 28th against Francis Naganu. Obviously, everybody wants to see Fury versus Usyk at a title unification fight. Do you think Usyk's going to have to go through Hergovich to get there, or do you think there'll be some wiggle room here for negotiation to commence between Fury and Usyk once again? Depends on who's willing to budge, Chris, because unless someone does, we're, they're going to be right back in the same predicament they were in earlier this year. You know, Fury certainly feels like he does, even though he has one title 
and uh, Usyk has, well, four, three that are really recognized, I suppose. Uh, he feels like he not, not necessarily deserves more, but he wants at least as much as Tyson Fury. And now Usyk has gone and proven that he can pack a stadium, too. And, and it wasn't even in his home country for obvious reasons. Uh, but he has proven that he can sell tickets as well. So it's not only a matter now. Tyson Fury has sold 94,000 tickets or helped sell 94,000 tickets at Wembley Stadium. And there's no question at this point that Tyson Fury is an enormous star. Uh, but unless they can come together and, and, and reach some sort of agreement, they're going to be in the exact same spot. And then if Usyk wants to fight again, of course, the IBF is next in the rotation. Philip Hergovich is their mandatory challenger. Looks like he would have virtually no chance to beat even what I saw as as a as a lesser Usyk than the one that beat Anthony Joshua twice, in my opinion, from what I saw on Saturday. Uh, again, Dubois is a talented, physically talented guy. I just don't think has it mentally to you know to to win that type of fight. But I think that Usyk was there for the taking on Saturday night, and he just didn't capitalize on that. Um, maybe, like you said, he, he couldn't focus after what, whatever crazy things he said after losing the fight. Um, it, Usyk was there to be beaten. As far as I could tell, he was there to be beaten on Saturday night and Daniel Dubois blew that opportunity. So I think that would want, that would make Usyk, not that Fury didn't want to fight him to begin with, but I think that would make Fury want to fight him even more because he sees he's, you know, he's an, obviously he's a lot smaller, uh, but maybe age and, and Fury is not much younger than, than Usyk. So it's not a matter of like some real young guy trying to come and beat up an old guy, but, Maybe he sees enough physical slippage in him where he knows maybe he can make some of those financial sacrifices and get him at the right time and go fully unify all the heavyweight titles and and probably retire after that, I would think. Which, well, by the way, if, you, if you've if you been watching the Tyson Fury Netflix documentary, Tyson Fury, I don't think he's ever going to retire, ever. He's, he's going to be he's, fighting. He's going to say he's retiring until and we're all dead yes. probably, but yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the Fury-Usyk negotiations fell apart over a rematch clause, right? Like, they were okay on the initial... I mean, I guess there was some back and forth because Saudi Arabia yeah. first, and then it's in, in, in the UK. But it was more... Towards the end, it was about a rematch clause. I, this is... It's a long way of saying I think this fight can be resuscitated. And I agree with you. If you're Tyson Fury and you're watching Usyk Dubois, you're thinking to yourself, look, Danny Dubois gave himself a shot to win with a, with a decent borderline body shot there. I'm better than Daniel Dubois. I, I should be able to, to handle that version of Alexander Usyk. At least that's got to be what you're telling yourself uh, if you're, you're Tyson Fury in that fight. I just I have no interest whatsoever in Hergovich versus Usyk. I mean, Hergovich, the shine's really come off him over the last couple of fights. The Zaley Zhang fight could have gone either way. Uh, his last fight, Dempsey McKeon, like whatever. Like that wasn't all that. It was just a ho-hum you know, kind of performance. So I, I'm... You know, I, I, I guys like Hergovich, if you get in line and you put yourself in a mandatory position, sure, you should get an opportunity to fight for a world title. But I would definitely like to see the IBF, see everybody, allow some negotiations to take place so we can potentially get Usyk versus uh, Fury in the first quarter of uh, 2024. All right, I want to talk about Terrence Crawford, who has been on a victory tour uh, since his knockout win over Errol Spence Jr. last month. And while we wait to see if Spence plans to exercise his rematch clause, Crawford has been openly talking about the possibility of facing Canelo Alvarez in his next fight. Uh, here's Crawford discussing it on the three knockdown rule this week. That, that would be my my opportunity to uh, 
show everybody how great Terrence Crawford really is. If Canelo uh, win that fight and uh, accept my challenge and I come up to 168 and uh, challenge him for undisputed uh, in his weight and that fight happened, then, you know, uh, man, I'm going to just show everybody, you know, that skills pay the bills and I got the skills to uh, to do it all in that ring. So, Keith, I-, I love this fight. I love it so much. I have no interest in, you know, a, a beating up on the Charlo Brothers tour. I-, I have no interest in... I really have no interest in a rematch between Crawford and Spence. I do have great interest in seeing if Crawford can move up to 168 and beat Canelo Alvarez if Canelo uh, gets through Jamel Charlo later on in September. Um I guess let's phrase the question this way. Do you think this fight's realistic? I mean, Crawford is aligned with PBC now. Canelo is aligned with PBC now. We still don't know who Canelo would face in the second fight of his deal. We know Eddie Reynoso has been saying Jamal Charlo is the the target, but Jamal Charlo, who the hell knows what's going on with him? Is Crawford Canelo realistic for some time in the first half of 2024? It depends on who you ask. If you ask Terrence Crawford, it absolutely is. If you ask Canelo Alvarez, it absolutely isn't. So uh, Canelo feels like if he fights Crawford and he wins the fight, he'll get no credit because he'll have fought a guy who moved up three weight classes because he said unequivocally he is not moving down to 160, to 162, to 160. He's not moving down. So the fight would have to be at 168, which Crawford says – that he is okay with doing, which, and that takes a lot of balls. I mean, I, I, and not that I didn't think Terrence Crawford <laughs> yeah. didn't have that to begin with, but I mean, that's that's really saying something to move up three weight classes. I, I guess you could look at it this way, Chris. Uh, there was a time, now the fight was offered to Canelo to fight Errol Spence at once. I think the uh, it was one sixty four, I believe, um, and that that fight was offered to him, and he t- and he didn't do it. I, and he, I think I remember him saying also, well, I'm not really going to get credit because he's a welterweight moving up and all that kind of, but he didn't completely dismiss it, I guess. I mean, it was something that, oh, who knows what could happen in the future. So I guess if you look at it that way, well, if he could have fought Errol Spence, he could fight the guy who beat up Errol Spence, you would think, right? But but Canelo has been pretty adamant about this, that he is not going to fight Crawford because he just thinks that it's... You know, it's a it's a bridge too far for Crawford, and he's not going to get credit for doing it. And kind of, what is the purpose of him doing it? Because he can make a lot of money fighting other guys. Uh, maybe, and you know, maybe he's got his his heart set on us because, of course, he feels like he's beating Jamel Charlo. No questions asked. Uh, who that second opponent would be? Maybe he's got his mind made up as it relates to that. Of course, he's not sharing that with us, but maybe he feels he knows who that second opponent is and he's not going to entertain Crawford. And then Crawford could be bound to this rematch with Spence anyway, which could take you through the beginning of 2024. And then, you know, but you know, Canelo's probably not going to fight until May anyway. So it, it would align that way. Um, I would like to be more positive about it, Chris, because, you know, just for the sake of history, I'd love to see if Terrence Crawford could pull that off. I mean, every time they say Terrence Crawford can't do something, he goes and does it. I mean, this is a this is a big ask. I mean, to move up twenty one pounds to, to to go beat Canelo is a big ask. But he might have another. What if Jamel Charlo wins? And I know that you feel that he has zero chance to win. I understand that. Let's just say he wins. Well, then you, then you have the guy who beat Canelo, who has this rivalry with Crawford. 
and is a stable mate of Earl Spence, well, then you really got some drama there, right? And 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 Jamel Charlo, I would think, wouldn't demand that he comes up to 168 pounds, and then Crawford only has to come up, well, how much ever weight they decide on, he would come up. Well, then you have uh, Canelo's still the biggest star in boxing. I'm not discounting that as it relates to who Crawford could fight, and it would be a much bigger fight if he fought Canelo because Canelo, again, the biggest star in American boxing. But Imagine if Charlo wins. Well, he'd have to beat Canelo twice because there's a rematch clause in the contract. So let's start with that. He's got to beat him twice. So then that, so Crawford will have to fight someone in between if that were to happen. Um, but I don't think that if Canelo, the favorite fighter, does win, I don't think that Terrence Crawford is going to be Canelo's next opponent as part of his three fight deal with PBC. Well, thanks for throwing some cold water on that, I'm, Keith. I'm, I'm, Good to I'm, talk I'm to you. I'm here to bring reality to the <laughs> podcast, my friend. Come on. I Well, hey, speaking of reality, I don't believe Jamel Charlo can win. I, I don't, I've said this before. I'll say it again. I see no pathway to victory for him. I saw a guy that got beat up pretty good by Brian Castaño. I think Canelo is levels better than Brian Castaño. And I think Canelo is going to do to him what Castaño couldn't. And I think he's going to finish him off in that fight. Um, you make a good point about the rematch clause. So, you know, you would have to wait till summer, fall of 2024 to potentially get Crawford against Charlo. But if Canelo wins, you use the word credit. Does Canelo get more credit for fighting Jamal Charlo in his next fight versus fighting Terrence Crawford? Because we'd be talking about a Jamal Charlo that would be at that point close to three years removed from his last fight. If you fast forward to May of 2024, uh, who has not looked impressive in the in the previous fights he's had? Uh, would he really get less credit for fighting Terence Crawford than he would Jamal Charlo? It's a good point, Chris. But I, I, one, I don't think that if Jamal Charlo fights him next, he will go directly into that fight. I think they will find some sort of tune-up for him on Showtime or something. He can't go, you know, he can't come off what would be like you said, almost three full years out of the ring and fight Canelo. Of course, you would have the the grudge. Let's say he beats Jamal. Uh, you have the grudge match aspect. He's he's coming to avenge his brother's loss. But if you hear Jamel talk, they're not even on speaking terms now. So I don't know what that matters exactly. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's things aren't good between them. They're, his uh, girlfriend and his wife got into a fight the day outside of the arena. And uh, when Jamel was doing uh, press, the two city press tour, and he was doing a whole bunch of interviews and stuff, he said he had not at that point had not spoken to Jamal. Since that happened, and I think maybe a couple, maybe two or three weeks had gone by from that point, he hadn't spoken to his brother. And it, regardless, uh, I don't think that Jamal Charlo would go directly into the Canelo fight if Canelo beats Jamal Charlo and is looking to fight Jamal next. Um, having said that, who knows how he's going to look in that fight because he didn't look particularly good against Juan Macias Montiel, who was blown out by Carlos Adamas. Uh, so. I don't know how anyone could say with any certainty what to make of Jamal Charlo at this point in his career. Um, if he comes back and he scores an impressive knockout, at least he would establish some sort of momentum going into that fight. But if it's not him and it's not Crawford, I mean, I really, I don't know who Canelo would fight in that second fight because it's it's not going to be uh, Benavidez or, or the winner of the Benavidez Andrade fight. And it's certainly not going to be David Morrell. So I don't know who it would be. Um, but yeah, I, you, I, I see what you're saying though, because no one knows what's left of Jamal Charlo at this point. So how could you say you would get more credit for that than beating 
who I believe is the number one pound for pound fighter in boxing. And I think most people should believe that at this point. Um, it's a good point, but it, but he, again, would have to come up 21 pounds in weight. So that's a huge factor. You know, Canelo used to, uh, he's got, a, he's a very hard puncher and he's used to absorbing punches at that weight. And he, and he fought at light heavyweight twice and, and didn't budge. So, you know, again, it's a huge ask of Terrence Crawford, but it, it, it would be a fascinating event, you know, fascinating fight to see if Crawford could do it. But I just don't, based on the way Canelo is talking about it, I just don't see it happening. You know, I, I think we, and just speaking in broad we, we have to come off the idea that Crawford, you know, would be, that everybody would downplay a win over Crawford. Maybe people would after the fact, but I just I I I can't get excited about a Jamal Charlo fight, even if Charlo is coming off a win over a Machek Seleski type. I can't get excited about that. Like of the available opponents out there, and I'm excluding Benavidez and excluding Morel because, as you point out, he's probably not going to fight them in May of 2024. Terence Crawford, I think, is the most marketable opponent, and I think the opponent that he'd probably get the most credit for because Terrence Crawford is the number one pound-for-pound guy now. And Canelo Alvarez, it could be sold as former number one pound-for-pound, still believes he's at the top, now fighting the guy who is at the top. I I just think there's so many ways to market it, so many ways to sell it, and if Crawford really is willing to do what he says he's willing to do, and I have no reason to doubt him, uh, then that that to me is just a phenomenal fight to make. I'm interested to see what happens in the aftermath of the Jamel versus Canelo fight and, and exactly how the pieces kind of fall into place. I guess the other thing we have to ask is, you know, is Spence going to exercise that rematch clause? Because if he does, this isn't an entirely moot point, right? right. Like, do you believe Spence is going to exercise that immediate rematch clause for either later this year or early next year? Well, uh, I've been hearing conflicting things, I would say. I mean, uh, he, he wants it from a pride standpoint. Obviously, he wants to, his get back. And there are people that I've spoken to, fighters, uh managers, trainers that think that it would be a more competitive fight at 154 pounds. Who knows? Uh, it, 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 of course it took a lot out of him to get down to 147 pounds, but I don't think that's the only thing that went wrong for him on 29. I agree. Um, that's what he's going to tell himself, obviously as a competitor and as someone who's never been in this predicament before having to come off a devastating lopsided loss like that, of course, he's going to say that. Uh, I don't know that it would be all that different, to be honest with you. But, Chris, I just want to circle back to one thing you said related to Canelo, because I agree with a lot of what you said about marketing the fight and the former pound-for-pound king against the current pound-for-pound king. And that all makes perfect sense. But let's just say the Canelo-Charlo fight goes the way that you expect it to go, and Canelo wins convincingly. Okay, he just beat a 54-pounder. His next fight's going to be against a 47-pounder, and then let's just say he beats him. Who's he going to fight next? Tank? Like, like what, uh, what, you know, at a certain point, people are going to say, well, why do you keep fighting guys who are all these weight classes below you? Now, Terrence Crawford is, in my opinion, is better than, than Jermel Charlo, but you're not going to keep going down and because, and also if you're Al Heyman and you're, and Showtime and you're trying to maximize this, this multi-fight deal with Canelo, I mean, continually having him fight guys in lower weight classes, I don't think is the way to really captivate the public. The Crawford fight is pro- is is it's an anomaly for obvious reasons, right? So, but but coming off, let's just say he beats Charlo convincingly, then go to the the, the undisputed champion in the lower weight class. I don't know if I don't know if you can sell that. You know, it's tw- it's twenty one pounds. If they fought at one hundred and sixty pounds, I, I, if they fought at one sixty, I might buy it more. But 
21 pounds. I mean, oof. Uh, you think, but you think you, a, a Jamal Charlo fight is more marketable then? You, you think no, that's I, don't, I don't want to, I, I, I honestly I, don't want to, I, like I said earlier, I, I, no one could conceivably say that they know what to make of Jamal Charlo at this point. I'm not saying that's what we want. I'm just yeah. saying that, that the chart, it's, it would be fascinating. I'm not saying I wouldn't want to see it. I'm just saying, does it make sense from a business standpoint for them to do that next? Particularly if he if he beats Charlo in a way that you and some other people seem to think that he will. I don't think that that's. I'm not saying he's going to lose. I'm not saying Canelo's going to lose, but I think that's a real fight. So they. I'll say this: if you if you're rooting, not you specifically, but anyone wants to see Crawford fight Canelo, you really should should root for the Charlo Canelo fight to be competitive because if it isn't, I don't, I don't see how you sell against a smaller guy. Now you could, you I could, just Chris, you what, do, you could do, what do you do to maximize? You could do anything. Dan, Danny Ooh. Dubois just fought Alexander Usyk in front of uh, 50,000 yeah. people. I mean, you could do whatever you want, I guess. You talk about maximize though, Keith, like what, what does maximize that second yeah. fight? I mean, if we kind of assume that Benavidez could be there as the third fight of that deal, like what is, what is an ideal situation for PBC and your Al yeah. Heyman? I don't see it out there. Like you'd almost have to like, you know, enlist like Jaime Munguia from Golden Boy or so, somebody outside the PBC universe because inside, you know, you cross your fingers and hope Demetrius Andrade wins. Like I, I don't know. I don't know what the 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 the, the opponent is for him there. And that, that's been a problem for months now, right? We've been talking about this for a while, whether it's going to be Jamal Charlo or somebody else. That second slot has been something of a mystery for since Canelo announced this deal. And I don't know exactly where, where he goes from there. I, I just get, I w even though there's a 21-pound weight gap, I would get really excited to see Canelo versus Crawford. And I think a lot of people out there would too. Now, after the fact, we may say, oh, you beat up on a smaller guy. But going into that fight, I think there would be more interest in Canelo versus Crawford than there would be in Canelo versus anyone else, including David Benavidez, I think. Now, we might sit there and agree mm. that Benavidez is a tougher fight, but in terms of marketability, I don't think Benavidez-Canelo does better than Canelo versus Crawford. I, I just think it's it's on two different levels market uh, marketing-wise. I'm not sure about the Benavidez one, Chris, uh, uh, because, you know, there's no there's nothing to disparage the Benavidez Canelo fight. Benavidez is actually bigger. You know, obviously they're in the same weight class, but he's the bigger guy. He's the younger guy. But in terms of known guy. commodities, right? Like who? Like people well, know yeah, Crawford of course, now. Like but, uh, yeah, but again, I don't think you can discount the twenty-one pound weight ad advantage that Canelo would have. Whereas Benavidez would be viewed as the the young killer, the bigger. Now I'm not saying Benavidez wins that fight. I'm just saying he's a naturally bigger, you know, yeah. taller guy who you know who's who's on the come up and he's been fighting as a professional for a very long time for someone who's 26 years old, but he's 26 years old. So, you know, I don't know that I don't, that's a, that's a good question. Would, would I think Crawford because of where, like you said, where his marketability is coming off this incredible win um, and the surge he has enjoyed over the last few weeks, it would, it, it would do good business. There's no two ways about it. It would do, look anything with Canelo is going to do good business. Right. And it would do, you know, much better business than most with Crawford involved. And so you make a good point. Um, but I don't know if it would, the Benavides fight, people really want to see that. And, and you know how it goes on both sides of it. People build up all this nonsense that doesn't exist. Like Canelo's running from Benavides. He's like, you know, I mean, the guy's fought everybody and I think he'll eventually wind up fighting Benavides. I mean, it's a good narrative for, for Benavides's camp to play off of while you're waiting for this fight. Um, but 
Demetrius Andrade's not an easy fight, you know? Look out. Know. Look out. I mean, Look I mean, out I, for Demetrius I, 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 Andrade. I'm, I'm quitting this podcast of Andrade beats Benavides. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Oh, look out for my guy, Demetrius Andrade. Live dog in that fight against Benavidez. He's going to do some things in that fight that I think will make Benavidez look bad. May not win, but I think he's going to acquit himself well uh, in that fight. That's a conversation for when we get closer to that fight uh, actually being finalized. I want to ask you, Keith, about Jared Anderson, what we saw from him this past weekend. Uh, picked up his second win in the last two months, stopping Andre Rudenko. Anderson... Uh, one of the best heavyweight prospects in all of boxing, maybe the best heavyweight prospect in boxing. He's ranked in the top 10 by three of the four sanctioning bodies, being moved pretty well and being moved pretty fast by top rank. Um, when you look at his future, you mentioned we mentioned F.A. Jogba. I think that would be a pretty interesting fight for Jared Anderson. But how close are we getting to Jared Anderson getting a significant fight? Well, I guess we'd have to define significant fight because... Usyk and Fury are off the table, right? I mean, those guys, he's not, I don't think he's ready for that necessarily. Uh, and I don't think he's in position to make that happen right now based on what they have going on. Um, so who, so yeah, then who does he fight? Who's not too dangerous because look, he can tell you all he wants that he wasn't hurt by Charles Martin. He was hurt. Not once. He was hurt twice by Charles Martin in the fifth round. The middle minute of the fifth round, he was buzzed by the left hand, and he responded very well to it. And maybe it was a little lack of focus toward the end of the 10th round, but he got rocked with another left hand, where if Charles Martin had another 20 or 30 seconds to try to follow up on that, the conclusion might have been different. So uh, he was hurt twice. by, and, and there's no shame in getting hurt by Charles. Charles Martin's a huge puncher. I mean, he's... You know, people think what they think about Charles Martin based on the Anthony Joshua fight, but he's a huge puncher, big guy, almost had Luis Ortiz out, um, and and has been a solid heavyweight. Uh, so it was a good comeback win for Jared Anderson. You know, he did what he was supposed to do with Rodenko, who had never really been stopped, stopped. You know what I mean? So it was a good win for Jared Anderson and exactly what he needed. And he came back on, on only seven weeks, uh, you know, only seven weeks after he fought the toughest fight of his career. And went 10 rounds for the first time, so give him credit for that. So who does he fight, Chris, really? I mean, because they were, look, from the top rank perspective, they were at, if it wasn't next, it was going to be the following fight. He was going to fight Zan Kasabutsky if Kasabutsky beat F.A. Jogba. Now, obviously, people would say, well, then why can't you just make F.A. Jogba against uh, Jared Anderson? Well, because they have the same management team. They're friendly. Uh, and I know people hate hearing the friendship stuff because, you know, the, the that's the boxing business, basically, right? And a lot of friends have fought each other. But they do have the same management team looking out for their interests and everything. And they both have kind of said that they're not going to fight each other. So the fact that Kasabutsky did just utterly baffling things on Saturday night um, and threw his career down the drain for the most part, um, <laughs> you don't, so they, they don't have that built-in guy with top rank for Jared Anderson to fight right now. Um so it's, it's going to be interesting to see who, because he's going to fight probably one more time before the end of the year. And uh, if he does that, it's going to be interesting to see because Kasabutsky is no longer available to him and, and F.A. Jogba is not for the reasons I just mentioned. It, who, where do you go? Right? Do you, do you bring a British heavyweight over? I don't know. I don't know who you bring over to fight him. Probably have to. Yeah. I mean, you probably have to. You have to look overseas where there are some heavyweight options. I mean, I don't know if he's ready for like a Joseph Parker. I'd love to see that fight. Um, 
maybe a little bit too far at this point for Jared Anderson. That's a, a really good, uh, I think, heavyweight fight. Uh, Here's one for you, Chris. How about this? Okay. Jolay Zhang beats Joe Joyce again on September 23rd, which well could happen. Mm-hmm. Frank Warren is is Jolay Zhang's promoter who works with Bob Arum. Would they put would they put after what happened with another strong southpaw, another older strong southpaw? Would they put Jared Anderson in the ring for an opportunity to win one of the interim titles and then become a mandatory? And would they pay Jolay Zhang enough money to make that happen? I would like to see that. Let me tell you something. Do respect to Jared Anderson, but if Jolay Zhang beats Joe Joyce again. I wouldn't make Jared Anderson a favorite in that fight. No. I think Jolay Zhang. I, I mean, I, I, listen, <laughs> I think he's too strong. And you can't knock Jolay Zhang out. Like, he's just too big. That. And he's got too good a chin. I know this is talk for a few weeks down the road because the fight's September 23rd. But the guy's been training in New Jersey for 10 years. And Lou Duva told me a very long time ago this there's something special about this guy and he's going to be a world champion. Mm-hmm. He's not really a world champion. He'll, he'll himself. He's got a pretty good sense of humor. He doesn't speak any English, but he's. Yeah, he does. And uh, he, you know, he knows that he's not a real, real world champion, but he's on the cusp of making something pretty special happen. Um, and, you know, people think negative things about him because of what happened in the Jerry Forrest fight. And they feel that he faded against Hergovich when he probably could have won that fight and everything. But my, and look, the top ranked matchmakers are entirely too smart from that, for that. I'm not saying that they're going to sign off on Jared Anderson fighting Jolay Zhang, even though he's 40 years old at this point. I'm not saying they're going to do that. I'm just saying it would be an, an appealing option if we're looking for appealing options. I agree. I'd love to see that fight. And Jared Anderson have to box in that fight because you're not putting Jay Lee Zhang down. I mean, I was there for the forest fight where it was not to rehash it, but that was a whole confluence of bad events for Jay Lee Zhang that led to him looking as bad as he did. Uh, I thought he won the Hergovich fight. It was close. I thought he won it. And you know, just seeing him land those straight lefts on Joe Joyce and busting up his face, that's who Jay Lee Zhang is. He has got blunt power with that left hand and he has got a good chin. So that would be an incredibly appealing fight. And, you know, good for top rank, good for Jared Anderson if they did go in that direction. But that certainly is one to watch uh, after the Joyce uh, Zhang fight later on in, in September. Last thing for you, Keith, I want to just, we saw the WBC order something recently. I want to drop this on you real quick. Um, Shakur Stevenson, Frank Martin. When I saw that, I, you know, I, I don't want to get excited about a potential big fight when two fighters are promoted by rival entities and fight on opposing platforms. But correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there's a purse bid schedule for what next week. And I'm dying to see if who goes through with it. I mean, I've checked in with a few people on both sides. I don't think there's any certainty on if this comes to a purse bid, if we'll get you know, both sides going through with that purse bid. But Shakur Stevenson, Frank Martin on paper, tremendous fight. Uh, what are the chances you think we get that fight uh, for the WBC lightweight title? Well, I really hope we do, Chris, uh, because it's, a look, it's, it's in terms of what's available, it's about as good as Shakur Stevenson's going to do next, right? Because Devin Haney's moving up to 140. Excuse me, the tank fight is not going to, obviously not going to happen next. It's a pretty good fight. Right. Martin didn't look good. Let me backtrack. He didn't look as good in his last fight uh, as he did in his in his previous fight against Michelle Rivera. And he was in with a guy who had a lot of experience, a lot of Olympic experience and amateur experience and everything. And, and he'd learned something from it. And 
the shine is a little off of him, maybe be, you know, based on how good he looked against Michelle Rivera. But he'll give Shakur Stevenson a real fight. Now, Shakur, I think, is on another level um, and would win. But I, I, I would much rather see that than see Shakur fight uh, an in-house guy. And, uh, and Jermaine Ortiz is very good, but, um, you know, just had all this trouble making weight and everything and probably shouldn't be rewarded for that by fighting Shakur Stevenson next. Um, but I would rather see that than an in-house top rank fight. Um, so let's see how they go about it. It's a very costly fight for whoever wins that purse bid. You have to pay a lot of money because Shakur Stevenson's minimums are high. And um, it was my understanding that they were, when they were negotiating before the WBC ordered the, uh, the purse bid, which is scheduled for September 5th, uh, the two, you know, the Tuesday after Labor Day, um, they were f- far enough apart on money uh, to necessitate a purse bid, I guess, um, for what to, to satisfy Frank Martin's side of it. Uh, the fight would be a, if Top Rank promotes the fight, it would be on ESPN the uh, on, on a Thursday night of all nights on a Thursday night in November before the Formula One Grand Prix race in Vegas. Uh, the next two days, either three days after that, I believe it is. Um, it's an interesting fight. I, I, I would favor Shakur and I would favor Shakur Stevenson against, you know, most lightweights. I would love to see him fight Tank Davis at some point. Um, that, that really, that's a pick to me. Um, but I would favor Shakur against most anybody else in, in the lightweight division, including Frank Martin, but it's a very good fight. Yeah, as far as lightweight opponents go, Frank Martin would be, you know, the best that Shakur has, has faced up until this point. It would just be a really compelling matchup of two undefeated young 135-pounders. This is the kind of cross-promotional fight that boxing needs to make more of. Um, It's one of those situations too, Keith, where it's like, you know, if that purse bid happens and there is a result, somebody wins, if you walk away from that fight, the other guy has a chance to call you a ducker. The guy can say you're ducking. Like there, there was a purse bid. Your promoter had a chance to put up a bunch of money to win that purse bid. Uh, I believe is the split 50 50 for something like that. Um, that's a good question. Cause I, I'm trying to remember where Mark. I forgot, yeah. but either, either way they'd be, they'd make a boatload of money. You get to be in a, a marquee fight. I'd love to see it. I think that's a terrific fight between two top guys at 135. Undefeated. I love what I've seen from Frank Martin. That last fight notwithstanding, I think that was... I don't think that was an example of the real Frank Martin. I think the Michelle Rivera fight was probably the, more a, a a look at the real Frank Martin, where Shakur has been great every single time uh, he's been out. So I'm all in. No, it's, a, it's an excellent fight, Chris. And like you said, we could use more... And, and Top Rank has shown... Um, and, and, and when necessary... PBC has sent fighters over there as well as opponents and such. But and in, and in this case, Frank Martin would have to be considered the opponent. I mean, Shakur, Shakur is the star, and Frank Martin would be the underdog in the fight. So, um, so it could be worth PBC's while because they want they want a big fight for Frank Martin, and they wouldn't have to pay for it if it goes if it went on the uh, ESPN side. From Top Rank's perspective, they would have to bid a lot of money um, because they could not afford, from a public relations standpoint. To lose Shakur Stevenson for a, even for a fight to PBC, if they were to get outbid by Al Heyman and, and you know TGB and what you know, which would represent Al at the purse bid, you don't think it's worth it? You don't like? I mean, not that it's the same to let thing, him fight on. But him. I remember when. Well, I mean, for one fight, like I remember when Lomachenko fought Gary Russell. I know it's not the same thing. That was very early in Lomachenko's career, but that fight was on Showtime, and that was 
at the time, kind of the marquee win of Lomachenko's career. I just, I don't think the top rank, I don't think it's catastrophic if for one fight, Shakur Stevenson goes over, uh, you know, gets a win, then comes back to ESPN and top rank. Maybe, I just don't know how it's, that it's so damaging to their brand. Maybe not catastrophic, but but they, they will not want that to happen, obviously, because they, ha- no, because they have the financial not. wherewithal to make sure that it stays on ESPN. You know, so I think they would do everything in their power to make that happen, but then it's like you don't know how much the other, in this case, you don't know how much the other side is willing to bid because it would be a coup, a minor coup, I guess, to, for the PBC Showtime side of it to steal course Stevenson away from top-ranking ESPN for one fight. Yeah. By the way, Shakur Stevenson and Devin Haney, just stop. Just just stop. Like, some of this stuff's getting gross with the two of them going back and forth. Like, bringing families in. Somebody's out there making secret footage of Bill Haney talking about some point about Shakur. I mean, just, just stop. You guys are going to fight eventually in the ring, whether it's at 140, 147. The two of you can't avoid each other forever. Uh, I've, I've just... I got. Uh, I rolled my eyes at some of that stuff I saw between Shakur and Devin Haney over the last uh, couple of days, Keith. I don't know how much you saw that, but that was that was a lot. That was a lot to to digest. I, I roll my eyes at a lot of what I see on social media, my friend. So you know. <laughs> you know By the way, Devin Haney, Regis Progray. You think that's going to happen? Who knows at this point? You know, who knows? <laughs> Can they, is there enough money there to satisfy both guys? I mean, I, who knows? I hope so. I hope so. That's a great fight at 140. Uh, Keith Eidek does a great job covering boxing over at BoxingScene.com. Follow him on Twitter at Boxing. Keith, always appreciate the time, my friend. I appreciate it, Chris. Have a good one, man. And when we come back, my conversation with Michaela Mayer. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card. Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Now, I'm supposed to talk here about what I remember and what I loved about my first car. And... That's easy for me to do because I still have my first car. And as long as it keeps running, and so far so good, I intend to have that car probably until the day I die. Uh, That's how much I love that car. It is like a child to me. Now, it does require some upkeep, and that's why I'm grateful for a place like eBay Motors. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Hey guys, this is Matt Jones, Drew Franklin from the Fade This Podcast. We got a great episode coming up. Picks in all the sports, football, basketball, we do them all. But here's a preview of this week's episode. Do you think it's more embarrassing to dye your hair or to have hair plugs? I don't think either are embarrassing if you're not trying to conceal it and act like you didn't. Okay, so you think if you just come out and go, I got hair plugs... Yeah, like check out these hair. Pl- I mean, don't just walk around. Hey, tapping. Hey, hey, stranger. I don't want you thinking this is natural. You know, but I mean, <laughs> do you, you have to do that with everyone you meet? Some people try to act like they. Uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. 
But I mean, like, like John Cena got it. You know, when John Cena came back to wrestling, he had a bald spot, and now he doesn't. Mm -hmm. You think he should be required in all interviews to say, look, by the way, I covered up my bald spot? Yeah, I guess it's weird. I mean, you don't wear a sign or, like, put a sign in your yard, but. All right, so what about toupees? Those are the most obvious. I but let's like. say you're like Bill Self and you can get it to where it looks good. His is magical. I don't even know if his is a toupee. It is. I think he went into the future and had a procedure we haven't even discovered yet. And this episode was brought to you in partnership with DraftKings. To hear more, listen and subscribe to Fade This on iHeartRadio or wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, Michaela Mayer is the former unified 130-pound champion. On Saturday, she will be above 140 pounds, which takes on Sylvia Bortot in a 142-pound catchweight fight in Manchester, England. It's a fight you can watch in the U.S. on ESPN+. Third straight fight in the U.K., Michaela. Are you a full-time British fighter now? <laughs> um, no, I hope to be back in America soon, but for the time being, I'm enjoying fighting over here. There's obviously a reason behind it. Um, there's a plan in place. People might not be able to see it now, but there is a plan being worked out. There's deals being negotiated um, for this fight. I know I'm fighting Sylvia Bortot, not a big name, not a name every, everyone's heard of, but uh, this is, and I'll be honest, it is a, a stay busy fight. You know, it's at a catch weight 142. It's no secret that I'm moving up. My goal is to go 147. So this is a fight for me to, to experience that at a, a heavier weight experience being in the ring at a heavier weight, you know, start adjusting to being at a higher weight class um, and staying busy until I can get the big fight that I want. Does the big plan involve someone with a name that sounds like Nahasha Honus? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yes, it is. It is. It does sound similar to that. Um, and because I, I do want to go straight for the big fights. I've had all the experience that I need, you know, 18 pro fights now. Um, so if I'm going to a new weight class, I want to be taking on the best sooner than later. You know, I don't want to be fighting people, names that people don't know. I want to give the fans big fights. So, um, Natasha Jonas to me is, I think the most, uh, reasonable fight that I feel like I can get, have, get done in due time. You know, you have, you have, uh, Sammy or Sammy, what the fuck you have, um, Terry Harper is there. And Sandy. Sandy Ryan, <laughs> you have, yeah. You have Sandy Ryan facing McCaskill next month. Um, so that sort of is, is off the table right now. They're focused on that. Uh, and then, uh, so, yeah, that, that leaves Natasha Jonas. And that's what I want first. So talk to me about the weight. Uh, you fight in April. You beat Lucy Wildheart. That was at 135, your first fight uh, moving up to 135. This fight at 142 and with plans to move to 147. Uh, what went into that decision to jump all the way up to welterweight at some point in the next you know six months? Because fighting at 135 felt no different. The body fell out a little bit. I, I got a little bit comfortable because I'm like, okay, I'm going up five pounds. But my body said, nope. Like you need to go up more. Like, I was just filled out so fast and it became um, just as hard to make cut down to 135. It was like no different. And I noticed the same thing after the 135 fight. It's like my muscles just filled out from all the work. And whereas before, it's like I couldn't let my body fill out. I had to constantly stay down because I knew that I had to defend my belts at 130. And so after the wild heart fight, I filled out again. And I was like, holy shit, I was starting 160 where it's like I never even hit that number before. Um, so it was really just my body saying like, you can't do this anymore. And I didn't realize 
how necessary it was until I got into this last camp and I felt so good. Like I, I felt so fueled and strong and throughout the entire camp in sparring. And usually there's a point in sparring and training camp where I was just like completely done. And I was just basically surviving. I was just trying to stay conditioned, stay sharp, get the, get the, get the few weeks to go by, um, get the sparring sessions in, get all my runs in and get down to one thirty. And so I wasn't reaping the benefits of all my hard work because was it refueling property properly or enough? You know, I was having to stay really lean and thin. And if you can remember at one thirty, I always had the conditioning. I mean, I trained that energy system so well because I constantly had to run, 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 run in order to make one thirty. I was running every day, intervals, sprints, distances, everything, all kinds of runs to get down to one thirty. And what that did is it made my conditioning really well. But that's only one energy system. I didn't. I wasn't able to train for that explosiveness and that strength. And that pop. And so that's something that I've, I've done differently now. I, I don't have to just run long distances. I can focus more on the other energy system and be more explosive. So that's the goal now. And you've posted a lot about your workouts at the UFC Performance Institute. Like, what are some of the things you are doing now or can do now because you're not forcing yourself down to 130? It's just less, less running and more uh, performance training when it comes to the weight room. And not just lifting heavy weights, but um, different type of of cardios. Maybe like a a small example that I can get that you just understand because I'm not the strength coach here. He's the genius behind this. I'm <laughs> fucking in there doing it, right? Oh, sorry. Um, but it, but basically like really short bursts, really short bursts of energy on of uh, of sprinting, like stay on the bike, um, versus you know doing 10, 10 400 meter sprints three times a week, you know, I was doing some serious runs like track stars would do. And it was just burning me out. And now I can focus on more explosive training. Um, but like, I couldn't do that before because I couldn't put on a lot of muscle and I needed to, to run to get that weight down. You, um, you know, we've seen a lot of women or several women in the last couple of years make big jumps, multiple weight class jumps, mm-hmm. whether it is Natasha Jonas or Terry Harper, among others, uh, they've had success in doing that. Has have you watched that success kind of from afar? And has that given you any confidence w- when you prepare to make your own jump? Uh, one thirty, one thirty-five. Those are really, really competitive weight classes. They're really competitive, and there was more opportunity to capture a belt at these higher weights. Um, now a lot of these girls need to move up, anyways. I mean, you look at uh, Terry Harper, and it's like all of a sudden she was ripped as hell i mean the legs that still had abs and it's like you knew her body was dying to move up right um so i'm sure they their body needed it but also there's more opportunity to grab a belt there um i think that's changing now though the changing with the the growth of women's boxing i think 147 is going to be the next big division i mean you have all the girls going there you have a lot of upcoming talent that's going to be there you have oshie jones olympic bronze medalist is going to be there you have um uh, Lauren Price, who's coming in at 147. And then you have girls that are already there, like Sandy Ryan and McCaskill and Tasha Jonas and me. And Chantel Cameron is moving to 147. She's told me next this coming year after her Katie rematch. So I think that's the next big division for women's boxing. It's the next 135-pound division. There's a ton of girls there, a ton of experience there. And that's where I want to be. You have uh, you know, been pursuing Katie Taylor really since you came out of the amateurs. There was hope in the yeah. Olympics that you two would face each other. Uh, you've been hovering around the same weight class for most of your professional careers. Uh, does this decision for you to move up, does that feel like you're kind of putting that aside, saying that's that's probably not going to happen, you're moving on? 
Yeah, because it's kind of sad to say because you are right. You know, I I have always wanted that fight with Katie Taylor. A lot of us women have, but I really believe that it was going to be a big fight for me um, in in the pros. I really believe that it was going to happen. I think a lot of people did. And I maybe I stayed at 130 too long and I missed that opportunity because now that I'm up at 135 or when I was, when I moved to 135, you know, she's 37 now and has two rematch clauses in place. One with Chantel and one with Serrano. And that put me out of an, a world title fight with her for at least a year, you know, and then who knows what she would do. I'm not saying she has to retire at 38 years old, but you're still the girls where us women are going a lot longer than, than anyone ever thought. But I don't know. She's had a long career. She may decide to hang it up. So for me stick around at 135, just hoping for that fight. It's just, it's not smart when I'm in my prime, I need to go where the opportunity is for me. And right now that's at 147. So that Katie Taylor fight may never happen. I, I know now I'm not going back to 135. It's just as hard as cutting the like. It's still just as hard. I can't. I can't do 135 anymore. So maybe that ship has sailed. But like I said, women's boxing has grown so much that there's Katie Taylor's not the only big fight for me anymore. There's other women now. There's other huge fights out there for me. So that's what I'm gonna go get done. So speaking of other women, we saw Daniel Dubois in action this past weekend. His sister Caroline Dubois is a rising prospect fighting around. 140 pounds, who I go on social media and she's been calling you out over the last couple of months. Uh, your thoughts on Caroline Dubois? Listen, Caroline Dubois is an up-and-coming fighter, really great, I really great talent. I have nothing bad to say about her until she keeps calling me out when I've stated multiple times that I'm moving to 147. I'm not fighting at 135. She's going for the for the IBO at 135, a world title, It's if you want to call the IBO world title. She's going for that at 135. So at this point, you're, you've stated clearly, you're staying at 135. I'm going to 147. I've stated that clearly. Let it go. She's come up with this whole rivalry in her head on her own. So it's not happening. That fight is not happening anytime soon. Now, if she eventually wants to come up. And she's young, so she can work and build her way up to coming to 147. Then we can talk about it. But like, it's, it's literally not worth the conversation right now. She needs to focus on other champ and the champion in front of her or whatever, the championship fight she has. And this is maybe a fight down the road, but it's I'm tired of hearing about it. All right. So let's talk about something that is worth talking about. Uh, about yeah. two weeks ago, Alicia Baumgartner tested positive for two banned substances. You lost a close decision to Baumgartner uh, just last year and have had what can charitably be described as a pretty heated war of words uh, before and after. Your reaction, Michaela Mayer, to Alicia Baumgartner's positive tests? I'm not going to lie. I was I was shocked. I was shocked. Um, and I'm disappointed because she's obviously, our, our rivalry aside, she's obviously had a great run these last couple of years. And, um, you know, her career was going like this. And, and she screwed up. She screwed up big time. Because now everyone thinks that she needed to cheat to get there. And her credibility is shot. It's gone. Um, not only that, but it doesn't matter the, the, the consequences she faces. It'll never take back how it's affected this division or the 130-pound division over the last couple of years. You know, it's affected a lot of people in a lot of different ways. And she can say that she wasn't, you know, maybe maybe she wasn't on it for my fight or the Terry Harbor fight or all these fights. But, you know, that's that's the problem with this is that it's always going to be in question. Right. People are always going to wonder. Her credibility is gone now. So we don't know. Um, but, you know, I, I don't I guess she still has to there's everyone has to go through due process. And I guess we'll find out uh, 
when they do the investigation, but I personally don't see how she's going to get away with it. I mean, it's not like she tested for some diuretic, right? These were like some serious hardcore PEDs and two of them. So, you know, good luck to her. I feel bad for her. I think her career is, is fucked now, but I feel bad for her. So she needs to go handle that. It's not my problem. It's her problem. It's my problem when it comes to boxing and keeping the sport pure, because what pisses me off is everyone now is saying, oh, everyone's on that stuff. Oh, all the boxers are on it. Oh, everyone's juicy now. And that's not true. There's plenty of us out here though who are competing clean and honest. And um, I hope she faces proper repercussions and um, we get stricter with all this testing and get something you know, set across the board for all the athletes because there need to be some fear instilled. There needs to be some more fear instilled in these athletes when it comes to what they put in their bodies. You know, we've seen her last two opponents, Ellen Mechaled and Christina Linodartu, uh, go after her on social media. I think a lot of people were expecting you to be first in line on that. What has what has kept you res- so reserved for so long on this particular subject? Um, yeah, I'm sure everyone was expecting me to come out and say a whole bunch of stuff, and and I I did want to. Okay, I, you guys know me, and there was plenty that I had to say. Um, but. I decided to bite my tongue. My my coaches were uh, were wanting to me to me to also sort of wait it out, stay quiet, um, and because everyone was expecting me to jump on, you know, everyone was just expecting something from me, and uh, they just they thought it was best if I just sort of stayed quiet for a little while, let things play out, and see see what unfolded. Um, but I, I knew I wasn't going to stay quiet, and I knew that I had a fight coming up, and I have a fight week coming up, and so I decided to tackle it during fight week. Um, I'm going to get asked about it all week. I know, I know I will. And so I just decided to wait for the platform to do it then and do it in a professional way because it's a serious issue, and it's just not something that you know, I want to be on, on Twitter. That I was on Twitter to create a rivalry, right? Everything I've ever said, Mom Garner, this is also create a rivalry to create a big fight to help the sport. This isn't helping the sport. This is bad for the sport. This is damaging the sport. And so um, I think that it's something that I should address professionally. And I think it's something that she needs to address a lot more professionally as well. I mean, she's on Twitter tweeting the craziest thing. Someone get her a publicist ASAP. I mean, it's disrespectful to the sport. And it's it's she's coming off very deluded and narcissistic because she should be very concerned. She should be very worried. You know, this is a big deal and she needs to be taking it seriously. So um, that was my approach to take it seriously and confront it with great people like you, Chris Mannix. <laughs> You've been uh, <laughs> aggressively pursuing a rematch with Baumgartner over the last uh, a year or roughly a year. If she decides to move up in weight and is around your weight class once again, does this positive test change anything for you? I, I'm not thinking about Baumgartner at all. I think that she's screwed at least for the next year she's not going to be fighting and i have other big plans i have lots of big plans to over the next year you know this this past year for me has been a little slow i know that but i was regrouping i was doing what i had to do to get myself back in position and i plan to be back in position by next year and so she she can worry about the problems she has because she got a lot of them right now she can deal with that and i don't i don't necessarily see a fight between us happening anytime soon nor do i i still have to consider if i would want one with someone who who's a cheat you know, and uh, if I want to give her that opportunity now. So it's not even on my mind. I got other fish to fry. Last thing for you, and you kind of touched on this because it is becoming really problematic in boxing these positive tests, you know, from mm-hmm. 
last year with Connor Ben, and then you had Dillian White, and then it's Baumgartner, and you know Robert Hellenius tests positive after his fight with Anthony Joshua over in the UK. Uh, I've heard people like Derek Chisora should say you know, things like automatic 10-year ban, not just for the the fighters, but for the trainers that work with them because they're just as responsible for stuff like this. I mean, that's a uh, maybe a bit of on the extreme side, but okay. is there a solution in your mind? Is there a punishment? I mean, you were part of the Olympic cycle. You were tested constantly as, as, as part of that. Um, mm-hmm. Is there a punishment that fits the crime, I guess, for, for testing positive for banned substances? Um, it's definitely a discussion that needs to be had, like, right? There needs to be, we need to weigh some pros and cons here because whatever we're doing now isn't working. It's not enough. People are testing positive, getting a slap on the wrist, a six-month ban. What Most people these days in boxing aren't even, are only fighting once every six months anyway. So what kind of punishment is that? Um, there also needs to be something more across the board, right? So, like, if you're testing positive, again, for, like, something like a diuretic, you're not going to get a 10-year ban. You're going to say, okay, let's, you know, I mean, it's something you obviously did to help you make the weight. Not good. Um, but getting popped for something as serious as what Baumgartner got popped for, we need to talk about those repercussions. Because, one, the the science these days is is pretty damn good, right? I mean, like, whatever she was taking, can't you take back to your chemist? And whoever's doing this for you, you change one or two molecules and it's a completely different drug and you won't pop hot anymore. So there's so many ways around testing positive that, right, that, but also they don't test enough. You know, you can, some of this stuff can get flushed out of your system so quickly. Um, and that's what a lot of these athletes are doing. So there needs to be more testing for, for sure. I mean, I, this is what I can say for sure needs to happen. More testing across the board. I don't care how much it costs. Right. If you can pay boxers millions of dollars, you can pay for some from some testing um, and some fear, some 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 uh, punishment that's going to instill like real fear. Yeah. Three, four year ban and, and you'll be your career is done for some people. You know, if you're not in your early 20s, your career is done. So um, stricter, stricter repercussions and a lot more testing. Yeah, you're you're obviously right because we're gonna get to the point where somebody gets hurt, and after that fighter gets hurt, a person that hurts him is gonna test positive, and that's gonna be an entirely different story. It's gonna be a, a an uglier story, and that's obviously the one thing we want to avoid uh, in boxing. Uh, Michaela, good to see you back uh, above 140 pounds, 142 for this fight. Looking forward to that one and your uh, chase for belts at 147. Appreciate your time. Thank you. I'll talk soon. That's it for this week's episode. My thanks to Keith Eideck and Michaela Mayer for joining the show. As always, subscribe, rate, review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you download podcasts. And I'll see you next week. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. 
You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without the essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. I mean, it provides great protection and it's really breathable so you don't get hot. That's a win-win. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, Right now, you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details.